My name is Alex Van Riesen, and uh, I have the opportunity to share in this church service. Well, as you might know, uh, or if you're visiting, you may not, and I just want to give my own personal greeting to those of you that are visiting or new for the first time. If I haven't met you, uh, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. I'd love to meet you afterwards. Those on the live stream, welcome. Um, glad you're here too. And we're in a series where we're talking about the healthy church, God's design for a strong body. And this morning, we're continuing to look at the book of 1 Corinthians and at the very end of chapter 12. Now, believe it or not, we've actually had four sermons on just chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, and this is the fifth today. And it's only on the last, like, five lines. Now, some of you, how many of you even noticed the music during the break? Okay, all right. How many of you could name that song? And I know there's two people here because they were just talking about it this week, and you're excluded from this quiz. <laughs> no, you're not. Okay, you can participate. What's the name of this song? I really flailed at Jeopardy, so I would like to redeem my All right, go ahead. What's love got to do with it? That's right, exactly. Okay, now, who else wants to participate by telling us who sang that song? Tina Turner. Tina Turner. It's all right. Just shout it out. That's okay. All right, last one for the bragging rights in the whole enchilada. Who can tell me? This, this was Tina's only number one billboard, uh, number one, top 100, believe it or not, in her entire, entire awesome career. What year did it pop? What year did it come out? Who wants to guess? Raise your hand. Oh, go ahead. Oh, so close, no prize, sorry. 83. Good try though, good try. Good try. Thankfully, I don't have a prize, so if he'd been right, there'd been no delivery. Sorry. But this, uh, that song is the title of my sermon this morning. What has love got to do with it? What's love got to do with having a healthy church and God's design for a strong body or community for those who follow Jesus? So I want to pray for us this morning and pray for this word and the conclusion here of five sermons on the chapter 12. Um, that will continue into chapter 13 and on in the weeks ahead. But I also just want to add my own prayer. I have a really good friend, and some of you have met him. He's been to church here with his wife and kids, uh, Nate Young. He's actually in Turkey right now and uh, happened to be going there for academic purposes, but got redirected by God and is actually in South Turkey right now in Adnan, which is a city, and is participating in relief work. So, and if you know anyone, I just encourage you to add your prayers for them. I'm sure you're already praying, but let's pray for our time together. Jesus, thank you for this time together. And um, I'm thankful that even now, though, we're here and Nate is in another halfway around the world, that you're with both of us, all of us, and you're especially with the people in South Turkey and in Syria, that you are there in the midst of incredible lament Grief, pain, despair, you are there. We have no idea how you're going to be at work and be present and blessing in that situation, but we beg you, do that. Work through Nate right now. I pray that I get to hear stories about how Nate experienced you blessing him as he was trying to care for other people and for the thousands upon thousands of others who are on the ground trying to be some spot of light 
to those who have lost so much. Come, Jesus, and give us this morning to receive from you, to receive your love as we dive into your word, as we try to understand what you're saying to us as a church. Help us to be a healthy church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by looking at the, like I said, the last five chapters of verse 12. Um, And so I'd like to read it as we begin. Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. So let's remember, Paul says this into a church body that he has visited and been to and actually helped to found and to start. And he's addressing a very specific concern in this community. And it's specifically, and we'll come back to this actually later, has to do with the gift of tongues and how it's being used and what's happening into the community as it's used. First thing I want to do in reminding us about this is that, God, that Paul has spent the entire chapter 12 with this body metaphor that he's created to call the church like a body with multiple parts yet unified in its purpose to have a good life, to be a healthy body. In the same way, a church has many people with many different gifts who need each other in order to be a healthy church. When you look at this verse and you look at the first things that Paul says, it's striking because when he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, he appears to be going against exactly what he has said already in the 12th chapter, right? He's been saying it's a level playing field. Not one gift is not better than another. No one has this gift is more important than any others. We need them all. But now he actually numerically enumerates the top three. And then the next two, he says, then, implying kind of a succession. And then the last three, nothing. There's no kind of pattern here except for that. So the question is, what's he doing here? Is he undercutting his own argument? No. I would suggest to you that what's happening here in this verse is that this is the turning point in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he's now not talking about an analogy in general, but to that community in specific. He says the line right there, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So now he is speaking to them directly. And when you look at this, it makes sense because this church is experiencing some really new things that happen when young fellowships or churches get together. And when they experience something supernatural and real, it can get pretty wild. And sometimes it can become, in that spiritual immaturity, the goal or the thing. And so what Paul says is, the first three are the apostles, prophets, and teachers. 
So he's highlighting them. Now, this is not, I think, unintentional. Who's the most important apostle in their life? Paul. Paul's saying, honor, listen, pay attention to me. I want you to understand what you're doing and what this kingdom that I've preached to you about is really about. And I want you to listen to the teachers and the people that are trying to explain what Jesus was teaching and what was going on there and why we follow him and the prophets who are hearing from God. I want you to have a strong foundation. I want you to be a church that's grounded. That's gonna be the first step in being a church that is able to really experience and exercise these spiritual gifts. I think it's important to note, though, that I don't believe, because if you look at that list, he doesn't name all the spiritual gifts. It's not intended to be exhaustive. It's not even, he doesn't even, when he when we look at in a few minutes at the rhetorical questions that he puts out, he doesn't even like list them in the same order. He's making a point here, and his point is that the building of this community will not be about a few at the top. It involves a few who are leading right now, but it's going to involve everyone, everyone who comes and who is a part of this church. Now, why and how do we know that? Well, because... He follows up this statement about kind of the listing of who's important or who we need right now for the work with eight rhetorical questions. Everyone knows what a rhetorical question is, right? It's a question that has an obvious answer. The obvious answer to these eight rhetorical questions is what? No. No. Clearly, right? You know that because he doesn't have to answer it. If he has to answer it, then you don't understand a rhetorical question, and he has to go back and start all over. So we understand the question. No, not everyone has all these gifts. Therefore, we're going to need everyone, because no one has all of them. Only together do we have all the gifts that we need to be a healthy community. And then, in verse 31, Paul tells the Corinthians to zealously strive for the greater gifts. Okay, so... So first he says, here's the order, but don't get cocky. Don't think you have all of them and then rise up and, you know, and kind of go for it. Um, he says, actually, I want you to strive for those gifts. I want you to strive for those greater gifts. And then adds, eh, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way anyway. Now, if this isn't, I don't know, I've just been thinking about this for a long time. This is very confusing stuff. Paul seems to kind of be shifting gears or changing direction multiple times. I would suggest he's not. Now, first, I got to say, we can't go into what the greater gifts are at this point. That is a long discussion that we don't have time for. But if you're interested in talking about it or you want to know what I think, ask me after the service. I'm happy to discuss it. I'll even say more if you take me to lunch. Okay, so (laughs) no, that's okay. Just kidding. Um, But whatever we ultimately decide are the greater gifts, we can all agree that Paul is wanting the Corinthians to not give up on pursuing spiritual gifts, right? He's saying strive, and that is a verb there. It's like go for, be zealous for, even though these gifts apparently can cause confusion, division, and misunderstanding in a community. 
So this is something that has to be handled carefully. But the more confusing statement is that after this entire chapter of dealing with these spiritual gifts and how not to use them to compare yourself to others or to compete or to whatever, and then to strive for them, he says, I have a more excellent way. To, know, to which I say, why didn't we just skip right to that, right? So it raises the question, what is this excellent way? What on earth does he mean by that? Well, this section breaks down into two parts. And let me read it for us. It's the 13th chapter, 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Who here has heard this preached on before? Yeah, raise your hands high, look around. I would suggest to you this is probably one of the top five most recognizable passages from the Bible, right? And where does everyone know it from? Weddings, Weddings right? It's the number one locale, right? I mean, not even the Bible, right? It's like, it's like, I don't know where they got it, but that's really good. I like that. That was really nice for that wedding. Well, let's break this down. Paul gives three pairings where he mentions exercising a spiritual gift without love and what results in it, okay? Speaking in tongues without love is like a noisy musical instrument. Prophesying or having wisdom or having faith without love makes you nothing. Total generosity or martyring yourself without love is of no gain to you, worthless. Now maybe there's no way to illustrate all of these, but maybe I can illustrate one. I'm just gonna do this for the entire time that I'm speaking. And I would like to know by a raise of hands, how appealing would it be to you? And how much would you enjoy the rest of the sermon if I just kept doing this? Any of you want to see it? Steve Faust would like it, but I think that's because he missed the whole first half and just got here late. So that's why. So should I stop? Yes. My point, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, unappealing. Not what you're shooting for. And then Paul to that says, you know all the spiritual gifts I was just talking about in my letter to you, they are worthless, worthless, zero, nada, if they're done without love. Wow. You will not increase in your experience of God or your maturity in the faith. There will be no benefit to you. And if there's no benefit to you, then there's going to be no benefit to the community of you doing it. 
It's a total waste. As a matter of fact, not only is it a waste, you will decrease in your very being if you exercise these gifts. Because he says, you are nothing. You are nothing. You are less than you are now if you exercise these gifts without love. That is so harsh. That's so tense. This is a profound warning. And the profound warning is intended to direct our attention, to get our attention, and to consider what exactly does he mean by love? Because if we don't understand what love is, then how can we use, utilize, receive, or be blessed by these gifts that he's told us to go for? If we really want these gifts, and clearly a lot of them, and all of them are attractive in many ways. But they need, there needs to be love. So let's look at this definition of love that comes from the second half of the passage. And I'm just going to read it slightly differently than how it's worded in the text. But Paul paints a picture of what love in action looks like in a list of do's and don'ts that should really catch your attention. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Okay, get ready for these. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. How do you feel when that list hits your heart? It's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? I guess we could all ask ourselves, since the moaning, moaning, since the morning, when you got up this morning, I don't know, what is it, 10, 11.30 right now, whenever you got up, five hours, six hours, half an hour. How many of these have you violated? How many of these have you not experienced in your life? Just count them off, right? I mean, this is a high bar. Don't you think? I'm tempted when I read this list to feel bummed, to feel kind of in, weighed down and labored. Why? Because I feel like what Jesus is saying to me, and maybe not all of you feel this way, but it's like, hey, look, if you want what I have for you, if you want the really good stuff, then you better love like this. And if you can't love like this, you won't experience these gifts. You're a huge disappointment to me. You're a zero, and why did you even come? Now, he didn't say that, but it's tempting to read it that way. This love statement, it's incredible. There are two what love is. We could just end with those, patient and kind, boom. If we were just those two, most of the time, wouldn't life be awesome? Just patience, just patience, forget kindness, just patience. <laughs> How about that one? 
What would it be like to have a whole day of pure patience? Wow. Wow. It'd be so refreshing. And then Paul throws in eight do nots, and they are gripping, aren't they? Do not do these. Boom, 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 boom. Five proactive verb statements that are like giant buckets that catch every crumb that fell off the table from whatever he said before. Because they all have all, right? They all say all. That's everything. Leaves nothing. There's nothing left out here. Now, we could do, and I hope we do maybe at some point, do a whole series on these, each one of these. We could spend an hour, or as like today, the two hours that I'm going to take, um, <laughs> talking about each one. That was a joke for those of you that came in late. Okay. <laughs> and to be even more clear here, let's be on the same page. The word for love that Paul is using is the word agape. This word is most commonly translated in the English as charity. And the definition of that word is affection, goodwill, benevolence, or kindness. So, you know, the first one, you know, there's patience and then love is love, right? That's love is kind. You know, it's like, oh my God, my head's gonna explode. So, and this is the same word that God uses for the love that he has for his people. But it's not a different word. This is the same word. Of course, the great irony is, right, the passage that we know this the most from is weddings, where the word for love is not agape, but usually I think what most people at weddings are thinking about is eros, right, which is romantic love. We're celebrating the romantic union. But in actuality, every time that word is preached, it's a word to the church. It's a word. So next time you hear that at a wedding, forget the bride and groom even if it's your wedding. <laughs> and think about this as a word to your church, to the community, that this is about the love that we're to show each other. And this is what Paul is asking for. So let me just be clear here in summing up what Paul is saying at the beginning of chapter 13. Unless you are exercising the kind of love he's just described, any use of the spiritual gifts will be at best a distraction to others and at worst, a situation where you gain nothing and become nothing. Thank you. Let's pray. No. <laughs> that is so intense. That is so intense. As I was looking at this, I thought, what are we supposed to do with that? Just go say, go and do likewise. No. I don't think so. Let me conclude with two thoughts that I feel like God was saying to me as I wrestled with these passages. First, this definition of love is first and foremost a picture of how Jesus loves us. This definition of love is first and foremost a picture, a word picture, of how Jesus loves each and every one of us in this room or on this stream when we were worshiping this morning, I loved the worship. I was so moved by it. And at one point, I just had this picture. And it's a little weird, but the picture was all of us sitting here. I couldn't see all of us because I was faced this way. But I, I've been here before, so I know what it looks like. And so I imagined, and I could see everyone sitting there, and there was a Jesus sitting right next to each of you with his arm around you. So for each one of you, there's all these Jesuses. Okay, I'm not 
trying to get into like a Trinity conversation here. I'm just saying, this is a picture of God and Jesus loves each one of you, every single one of us. And let's face it, at one time or another, we have all wrestled with whether Jesus really loves us. And I think the first and most important message that Paul wants us to get and to understand is that Jesus is the model. Jesus is the standard, but not even that. Jesus is the one who loves us this way. This is how we're loved. How does it feel when you change the tone of the passage and read it that this is how Jesus loves you? Jesus is patient with you. Jesus is kind with you. Jesus hopes all things in your life. Isn't it amazing? How many times do we come to prayer or do we think, oh my gosh, you know, I really screwed up yesterday. God, just I fall short. And you're right. It was a mistake or you hurt somebody's feelings or you did something bad. Totally true, right? But the way we feel about it is we feel really bad about ourselves. Sometimes repentance, and that's a good part of it, but we also just have this lingering sense of we're bad. The really intense thing is that Jesus continues to love us. He does not stop, stop loving us because we screw up. How many of us have wrestled with that picture of Jesus in our lives? I think I have. And I've been doing ministry for over 30 years. Like I really blew something and I feel like Jesus kind of takes a hiatus on love. And he's like, oh, that one was really bad, Alex. But see, how he feels and how he engages us and even his community is different than his love. Will Jesus correct? Will Jesus give a word? Will he challenge? Will he rebuke? Will he call something into the light that is in the darkness? Absolutely. The only difference between him and us is that he will always do it in love. Always. It will never come out of hatred. It will never come out of competition. It will never come out of anger. It will always come out of love. How awesome is that? How many times do we feel like <laughs> afterwards we justify, even to ourselves, something we've said or done to somebody was, I'm just trying to love them. <laughs> it's not my fault I was loving them with a hammer. <laughs> That's just what I had handy. Jesus has truth for us. He has things that he wants to say to us. He wants to see our lives change and grow. He wants to see us be more like him, but he will always do it in love. And that's what he wants for us as a community. If, God, if your view of God's love for you does not match up to this list, then I think you should just start to ask God, hey, Reveal to me how you are being patient with me. This is what I'm doing in my prayer times. I'm trying to say, I'm noticing Jesus is patient and loving to me, and I want to see how that transfers into my life with others. How can the patience or love or non-harshness of Jesus really be empowered in the way I treat others? I'm often amazed at how seldom it does. But now I know what the work of my life is, is to become a person of love. There's absolutely no way that this could be the kind of love 
Paul wants us to have for one another unless it was the kind of love the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have for us first. It would be cruel if that wasn't true. Second, since we will never exhibit this kind of love perfectly in our life together, God wants us to be growing and showing this kind of love and asking for the presence and practice of the spiritual gifts at the same time. You see, if we say that we got to wait until all of us are acting in love, given that definition, perfectly, before we can ask for the spiritual gifts, when will we ever get to ask for the spiritual gifts? Never. This is never going to happen. I don't know what your experience is, but search seems to be a lot about maybe trying to love, failing at love, repenting of that failure by experiencing Jesus' love and forgiveness, and then doing it some more. The only time we're going to experience this definition, or let's say act it out perfectly, will be in heaven when we're with Jesus. Now, if you want to know how that works out, you can come next week, because Ron's going to talk about that. I'm not going to steal his thunder, even though I've got another hour and a half to go. <laughs> this kind of love, it must be what the church is focused on becoming. And when I say the church, I mean each member of it, every part of the body, that this is something we are doing together to pursue this kind of love. And he must be saying that while we're doing that, we can also be asking for the gifts of God. That he's going to allow us to use them, to be with them, to exercise them, to try, even in our imperfect state. I don't see any other way to read the text. And if we're operating as a community with that understanding of love, and we're trying to experience and receive more of Jesus' love for us and walk out that love for other people, then we will also be able to ask for and experience the gifts of God. So going back to the beginning of my sermon, the question is the title of the sermon, what has love got to do with it? What's the answer? Thank you. Everything. Everything. What other word fits better? It's got to be. It's the whole ball game, people. There's a lot going on, but I think it's pretty clear that at the center of all of this is the love of Jesus, the love that he has for us and wants us to demonstrate to all of those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are so gracious. You are so good to us. And you love each one of us so deeply, so deeply. You loved everyone in this Corinthian church. Some of them were completely going off the rails. Some of them were doing such crazy things and exalting themselves and their gifts, and yet Paul comes to them 
in compassion and love and kindness and teaches them the truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you're doing the same for us as individuals and as a church this morning. The path for us forward is to receive, experience, bathe in your love. Know that the ways that love is listed out in this passage is exactly how you love us. Help us internalize that, take that deep within us so that we could join you as you express this kind of love to others around us. Thank you, Jesus, that this is not on us, that you have not put bricks on our shoulders, but you've come to breathe life into our hearts, to breathe love into our souls. Thank you, Jesus, that your love is everything.